Father in heaven, it is our great joy and to be able to gather together and to look at your word together. We ask that you would help us to worship you in this tonight. We know the setting is different. We know that we're using a different part of the room and there's no music and all of that, but really what we are doing tonight as your people is worshiping you as we listen to your word. And so we pray that you would help us to lay aside the distractions and the, the weariness and the frustrations of this week to find our rest and delight in what your truth is. Help us to be attentive. Help us to stay focused. Help us to stay uh, awake so that we can glorify you and, and approach you with the appropriate amount of reverence. All of these things we ask in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, tonight we continue our, our Bible study through the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a, a mouthful. And if you have no idea what that is or why we're going through it, we invite you to listen to the, the study from a couple of weeks ago in introducing this study. But really, the, the point of it is that we, we are studying the Bible. We're, we're not studying the confession per se. We are using this confession of faith, the statement of faith, uh, in order to guide us to think through some major topics of the Bible, all right? So, specifically tonight, we're continuing on the subject of the Holy Scriptures, which is the first chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith is of the Holy Scriptures. That's what we started two weeks ago. Pastor Corey filled in for me last week. Thank you, brother, for that. And now we're in part two of chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. In our last session on this subject, we looked at just two passages, and in those two passages, we ended up with six conclusions. We concluded together that the Bible is sacred, that the Bible saves, that the Bible is God's very word, that the Bible changes people. The Bible is all that a Christian needs for ministry, and that the Bible is the standard of truth. Again, if you want to listen to that study, it's online. It really was encouraging for me and hopefully for you to, to go through these beliefs that for many of you, they're not really new. They're really elementary to the Christian faith, and yet it's encouraging, and it strengthens our conviction of the Holy Scriptures. Now, in retrospect, the way that we started this study, looking back at it, it may not really be the most effective way to work our way through this series. And so we're going we're gonna to change it up a little bit. What we're going to do starting this week is we are indeed going to look at a sentence or two of the confession of faith, and then we're going to act like Bereans, all right? We're going to act like Bereans. So we're going to, as, as Acts 17, 11 says, we're going to receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things are so. In other words, rather than expositing the Bible passages first and then looking back at the confession, which is what we initially had started to try to do, we are going to look at the claim that the confession makes first, and then we're going to test that claim against the scriptures. And that's going to help us to move along more smoothly and more clearly throughout this study, and it's going to help us to put to uh, application the sixth point from last week, which is that the Bible is the standard of truth. The Bible is the standard of truth. The confession makes all sorts of truth claims, and it's up to us 
to test them to see if they're actually true by looking at the scriptures. So let's begin. We're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to look at the first sentence of the first paragraph of chapter one of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And then we're going to briefly review the passages that we looked at last session to see if they're true. So this is in your handout. If you don't have a handout, they're in the two rows that are in front of Eliza there in the back row if you want it. And here it is. Here is the claim that the confession makes. Read along with me on your handout. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So let's see if that's true. I have a feeling that you all already agree with that statement, but maybe you don't know why you agree with that statement. Okay, so let's look. Why do you think that this is true? Let's think, first of all, through the first passage that we looked at last week, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. Last session, I should say. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. We already exposited this passage. You can go back and listen to it, so we'll just do a quick review of it. The question is, does 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, confirm any part of what this statement that the confession makes and says? And the answer to that is yes. It does confirm, surely. First of all, it agrees that the scripture is in fact holy. Remember from the passage in that session that Paul calls them sacred writings in chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3 verse 15. Sacred writings. It also agrees that it's sufficient. We concluded in that last session that, that it's all that the Christian needs for ministry. That's all that they need. We concluded that it is God's very word. It's God-breathed. And so, therefore, it is the standard of truth. And because it's a standard of truth, it is indeed certain. And because it's God's word, it's also infallible, meaning that it's never going to fail. The confession also says that it's the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. Only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. Rule just means standard. So it's the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard. And again, thinking back to that last session, we confirm from 2 Timothy 3.17 that the Bible is the standard of truth. It's the standard of truth. Meaning that every other truth claim needs to be compared against it. Anything that contradicts the Bible is false. The confession is also narrow in what the Bible is sufficient, certain, and infallible for. It says, look at your handout there. It says that it is sufficient, certain, and infallible for saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So we saw last week, or last session, I should say, that the scriptures are able to make somebody wise for salvation. In other words, the scriptures let you know what you must do to be saved. Trust in Jesus Christ, period. Have faith in Jesus Christ. It also teaches us how to obey God. We remember from that last session that verse 16 tells us that the Bible changes people. The Bible is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's all that Timothy needed in order to combat the rise of wickedness in the world around him. That's the only answer that he needed to give is the word of God. The Bible is the standard of truth, including all truth about morality. God alone, the one who gave us the scriptures, 
is the final arbiter, the final judge of everything that is right and everything that is wrong. And it's all according to his perfect character. And he's revealed to us everything that's right and wrong in his word. Now notice once more, again, that neither the scriptures nor the confession claims that the Bible is sufficient for all knowledge. Uh, the Bible isn't going to tell you how fast the speed of light is. It's not going to tell you how to change your car's oil. All right? There is other knowledge that's revealed to us outside of the scriptures, but none of that knowledge is ever going to contradict God's word. You follow? So, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, strongly affirms this first statement, that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We also looked at another passage, <clears throat> Isaiah 8.20. Isaiah 8.20. And remember, just again by way of review, from that passage that there were these apostates in Israel, meaning that there were a lot of Israelites that had fallen away from the Lord. And those people really would have liked Isaiah to consult with mediums, to consult with uh, necromancers. They want to talk to dead people for, for wisdom. But God admonished Isaiah, don't listen to them. But instead, go to what God had revealed to Isaiah himself. So from that, we drew this principle that we, we need to go to the Bible to discern God's will. We shouldn't go through any worldly means to try to discern God's will. He has revealed to us what he wants us to know, what he wants us to believe, what he wants us to do, and so we should be going to God's word for all of those things. What are some things that, that people go to for answers instead of the Bible? Uh, horoscopes, astrology in general, um, psychology, internet forums, etc. Now, with those first two, horoscopes, astrology, those are from hell. They should not be consulted at all, okay? When it comes to the latter two, it's a little trickier. There, there's nothing wrong at looking at psychology per se because all psychology is is observing human behavior. And they do get some stuff right. They get a lot of stuff wrong because it comes from a, a wrong worldview, but there's a lot of things that are correct. And there's nothing wrong with looking at internet forums because even some of them have some solid information as well. But neither of those things should be the primary source of knowledge for you. What God has revealed to you in the scriptures must always be primary, must always be supreme, and whatever is taught that contradicts God's word is false and must be rejected by the follower of Jesus Christ. This is very different from just going on a, a side note journey. Uh, when I was United Methodist, they would teach us something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And they would say that our sources of knowledge are scripture, tradition, reason, and I can't remember the fourth one. It escapes me. What's up? Yeah, I don't remember. Praise the Lord. I don't remember it. But the, the issue with that, which Wesley would have, Charles, John Wesley would have completely disagreed with, but the way that they were teaching us is that all of those four things are equal sources of knowledge and wisdom. And so if you, I know we, we've often heard from somebody, I, I once had two gay pastors and they were the, the best people in the world. So for them, that was their truth, right? So it overrode what the scripture says about anything. 
So that's not how we as Christ followers should be operating. This is supreme. The Bible, what God has said to us, he revealed to us, that's what we test everything against. Everything that contradicts it is false and needs to be rejected by the follower of Christ. So now that we've reviewed those passages from our last session, let's look at our next one. Luke chapter 16, Luke 16, verses 29 through 31. Luke 16, verses 29 through 31. Just as a helpful reminder, whenever you hear the word of God being read, that is indeed God's very word to you. So let's listen intently. Luke 16, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the, the context of this is there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about a rich man who died and he went to Hades, which was the place of torment. And this rich man sees Abraham far off across this chasm and he asks Abraham, just give me just a little touch of water to alleviate the pain of torment that I'm going through. And Abraham says no, essentially arguing that what the man was going through was the justice that he deserved and explaining, furthermore, that it's impossible for Abraham or anyone to cross this chasm to be able to give him water. Now, alternately, the rich man then asks that Abraham would send this poor man that went to to heaven, the the comforted side, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to go and warn the rich man's brothers about this place of torment. I don't want my brothers to go here. Please send Lazarus to go warn them. So we read again in Luke 16, 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, God had already warned his brothers about this place through the Old Testament. And while it's true that the majority of the teaching about hell and Hades, you find that the majority of it in the New Testament, the Old Testament was, <coughs> pardon me, let me cough real about that. The Old Testament was sufficient to warn them. The Old Testament was sufficient to warn them about hell. And here are five passages very quickly from the Old Testament. Daniel 12.2 says, Daniel 12.2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Ezekiel 18, 20. The soul whose sins shall die, the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Isaiah 47, 14, Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. And then Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So all that to to illustrate to you that God had already warned the rich man and his brothers 
in the word of God, in, in the Bible. He already warned them. And then the rich man responds, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's verse 30. To which Abraham responds in verse 31, Look, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, God's word is sufficient. God's word is enough. Signs and miracles, even resurrection, won't bring somebody to salvation if God's word won't. Think about all the miracles that Jesus performed in the sight of the Pharisees, including raising two people from the dead, and they still rejected him. Think about how Christ's tomb was empty three days after they had killed him. And rather than saying, hmm, I wonder if there was some truth to what he was saying, they started paying off people to carry out this lie for them. They still rejected him. God's word is sufficient to save. And if someone doesn't come to faith through the means of his word, they will never come at all. And so this passage affirms that the Holy Scriptures is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Let's look at one more passage on this subject before we move on. Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20. In Paul's treatise about uh, how Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, that's kind of the context of Ephesians 2.20. He says that the household of God, Ephesians 2.20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the the expansion of Christ's kingdom is here illustrated as, as a building of a house. The house is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And in particular, it wasn't them as people, but it was on what they were teaching. It's what Christ had told them to teach. The house is built on the foundation of what they were teaching, which was ultimately from God himself. Now remember, in the early years of Christianity, they didn't have Matthew through Revelation all at once. They didn't have the New Testament that was written. The first New Testament book was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus died and rose again, which might make you uncomfortable, but we need to understand that it's a different culture, that In that culture, it was a very oral culture, which means that they were very accustomed to transmitting information by mouth, and accurately so. Whereas in our day and age, uh, things passed on by word of mouth can really easily be misrepresented or misunderstood. In that culture, they were very, very careful to to be accurate in what they were saying, to to be repeating the truth, and they would hold each other accountable to it. And furthermore, most of the apostles were alive when the scriptures were being written. And if there were anything, was anything that had been twisted or perverted over the last 20 or 30 years, surely that they could have repudiated that. They could have written against it. Well, I heard from over in Ephesus that they were saying all those sorts of these things. That never happened. But there's never any evidence of any of that at all. The apostles don't repudiate anything. They all agree with what happened. They all agree with the truth. There is no evidence that the New Testament writings, even though they were written decades after Christ rose again, ever contradicted what the apostles were teaching all along. 
There is no evidence of the New Testament writers even disagreeing with each other's writings. Any apparent contradiction is, is pretty easily resolved. Probably the biggest one that, that skeptics will point at is Paul and James, where Paul is saying that, that you're justified by faith alone, and James is saying you're not justified by faith alone, but if you read what they're saying, you understand what's being said. You're made right with Christ by having faith alone, but that faith is never alone. You will always also produce good works if you really believe in Jesus Christ. So all that to say that, that there is no infighting among the apostles in their writings or any kind of New Testament writings. We can't even do that in our Reformed tradition. You look online, they're fighting with each other all the time. They can't agree. But that's not the case with the New Testament writers. The church was being built on what the apostles and prophets were teaching. People were getting saved through what the apostles and prophets were teaching. People were being sanctified through what the apostles and prophets were teaching. And now we have what the apostles and prophets were teaching in the New Testament canon, in the New Testament. And so Christ continues to build his church through the New Testament and the Old Testament, but through the New Testament as well. Now that, again, it doesn't diminish the Old Testament. We don't want to unhitch from the Old Testament, as one pastor recently said. The Old Testament is just as much God's word as the New Testament, and you cannot fully understand the new without the old. But in the Old Testament, the gospel is present, but it is concealed. It's, it's left a mystery. You get shadows of the gospel in the Old Testament, but it's fully revealed in Christ. It's fully revealed in the New Testament. Now, can someone come to faith in Jesus Christ from the Old Testament alone? I'd argue that they can come to a belief in a coming Messiah, but they won't know who that Messiah is if they don't hear about Jesus Christ. This is how the New Testament Jews and Gentiles came to be saved. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was through the teaching of the apostles and prophets, which we now permanently have in the New Testament. So in this way, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So we find that first statement in the confession to be true. But so what? So what? How do we apply this doctrine to our everyday lives? Before we jump on to the next topic, let's, let's pause and consider that. Here are four ways to apply this concept. First, run, don't walk to the word of God. Run to the word of God. If that's what you need for saving knowledge, run to it. You see, when people have a disease, they become experts on that disease. Nobody knows about VLCAD more than Megan and me right now. We know more than some doctors about VLCAD in Las Vegas right now. Why? Because we read up on it more than any of they do, because our daughter has it. Why would you not strive to be an expert on the Bible? Second, trust the Bible. Because it's certain, believe what it says. Heed not the liars who say, like the devil did, did God really say that? Yeah, you know what God has said because you have the certain word of God in your hands. Thirdly, believe what the Bible promises. Believe what the Bible promises. Remember that these are God's very promises to you as his people. And like God, his promises will never fail. His promises are infallible. 
because he who made the promises is infallible. And fourthly, obey the Bible. Obey the Bible. In the word of God, we see who God is, what he has done, and what he expects of us. If you are sitting here as someone who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, why would you not want to be like him? And why would you not want to do what he commands? So again, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Next, in the confession we read, I think this is on the back of your handout. Although the light of nature and the work, works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, that they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So what this portion, what this phrase and statement is talking about is what theologians call general revelation. General revelation. What that means is, it's what God reveals not only to his people, but to everyone all over the world. He reveals it to everyone all over the world. Reason? Creation, his provision. Reason, creation, his provision. These things show God to be real, show him to be good, to be wise, and to be powerful. And general revelation is enough to make men without excuse. They should love and obey this God. Based on what they've seen, they should love and obey this God. And yet, General revelation is not enough to save somebody's soul. That's what the confession is claiming. So let's search the scriptures to see if these things are true, starting with our first passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Romans 1, 19 through 21. The Apostle Paul, uh, making the argument that God's wrath is on all unrighteousness in the world, he says this in Romans 1, 19 through 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Surely not everything that can be known about God can be seen in nature. Not everything. Otherwise, there'd be no need for the Bible, right? But enough of what can be known about God is plain to all mankind. Enough of what can be known about God is plain to all mankind. God has plainly revealed himself in the works of creation, or as verse 20 calls it, the things that have been made. What are some of the things that can be seen in creation? Verse 19 answers that for us. His invisible attributes. You can see God's invisible attributes in creation. That is, what we can see about God even though we can't see God. Okay, What we can see about God even though we can't see God. We don't see God in nature per se, but in nature we can see his attributes. What attributes in particular? Verse 20 says, his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, 
an honest person who is looking at the world around him would have to conclude that there is an eternally powerful being who made all of this and that this eternally powerful being must be a god. An honest person must conclude that from looking at the world around them. A reasonable person wouldn't conclude that all of this just came from nothing, from chance. The only reason that a person would conclude that everything came from nothing is that they refuse to believe that God exists. They refuse to believe it. Albert Einstein, pretty smart guy I hear, rejected atheism. He rejected atheism. Sadly, he also rejected the idea of a personal God, and there's never been any evidence that he repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, but he refused to be called an atheist. He observed the harmony of everything that existed, and he thought it was foolish to be an atheist. That's what we're talking about here. Atheism is unreasonable. God has made his eternal power and his divine nature plainly known. And not only has he made his eternal power and divine nature plainly known, but those things have also been, verse 20 says, clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. So it can't be said that God made it plain, but people didn't perceive it. Because they didn't perceive it, they're not really responsible because they just didn't notice that God created all things. No. It has been clearly perceived. And it has been clearly perceived, verse 20 says, since the creation of the world. The result of God's making himself plain to the world via his creation and the result of the creation, us, clearly perceiving his invisible attributes in creation is at the end of verse 20. Here's the end result of that. So they are without excuse. They should have worshipped God based on what they knew about him. Now, mind you, this is not about ignorance. It's not like people really wanted to know God, but God refused to allow that. No, it's about rebellion. Verse 21 explains this for us. Look at Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So mankind saw the true God of the Bible, but they refused to honor him or thank him. They wouldn't be the first creatures to do so either. The demons saw God's eternal power. They saw his divine nature. But they likewise refused to honor him. Why is that the case? Why does anyone behold the true and beautiful God and reject the God they know exists? Perhaps a clue of that is in what the serpent says to Eve in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this insidious lie of the serpent is Satan tempting Eve to question God's integrity. The serpent made it seem like God's lying to you, Eve. He's lying to you to keep you from being godlike, which is like the opposite of the truth. The propensity to question God's goodness and, 
and question his intentions, that's been wired into every human being since the fall. And so even though everyone can see plainly God's eternal power and his divine attributes, they reject him. And because of that, Romans 1.21 continues with this. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When a person rejects God, their thinking becomes futile. Godlessness leads to emptiness, it leads to vanity, it leads to foolishness, and foolishness leads to darkness. Now that was us. That was the state of all of us before we believed in Jesus Christ. Let's not get too haughty and prideful about this. Regardless of what spirituality or religiosity that we had, we did not honor God or give thanks to him. We traded him in for a lie because we did not want him. We became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. And that's why God gave his only son for us. Christ was nailed to the cross with all of our rebelliousness, with all of our our darkness put on him as if he was the one who did it. And he suffered God's righteous wrath for all we who believe in him. And through faith in him, all of our sin, all of our rebelliousness is forgiven. So trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation because apart from him, you're the one being described here in this passage. Romans 1, 19-21 shows us that yes, the works of creation do manifest God's power, leaving men without excuse. And so next let's look at just the page over, Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. Romans 2, 14 through 15. Paul is the author of this book, and he's continuing his argument that, that everyone is deserving of God's righteous wrath. And he says in our passage, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this is actually a good uh, answer to the question, what about that tribesman clear across the world that he has no access to the Bible? Okay? He, he doesn't know God's law, so he can't know that he's breaking it. And, and he doesn't know the gospel, so he can't reject it. This is a, an argument that's often made, and sometimes something that even Christians, genuine Christians, can struggle with. And a similar question is really being answered by Paul here. What about the Gentiles, the non-Jews? They didn't grow up having God's law like Israel did. If they don't have God's law, how could they be held accountable to God? This is the question that Paul is wrestling through. Yes, even though the Gentiles didn't have the law and they weren't given the Ten Commandments, they, by nature, verse 14 says, did what the law requires. They did what the law requires. Paul is not saying that they fulfilled the law like they actually obeyed it, but what they're saying is they sometimes would obey the law. They, they were showing themselves to know the law, at least some of it. Now, this was an interesting anthrop- anthropological study that I ran into. They did this study over 
60 societies around the world, various different types of societies, and they were trying to come up with some sort of universal moralism. What does everybody in the world agree is right and wrong? And they, and they came up with seven moral behaviors that all 60 of these societies agreed on. Helping family, helping your group, reciprocating, being brave, deferring to superiors, dividing disputed resources, and respecting prior possessions. Doesn't that stuff sound familiar to you? Does the word not say to honor your father and mother and that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever? Does it not say to, to not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Does it not say to be strong and very courageous? Does it not teach to submit to authorities? Does it not teach that you should share what you have and you shouldn't steal? So at least in these ways, it's plain that God's moral law or the work of it is written on their hearts. Why? Because they do at least some of what God's law requires. They agree in their heart of hearts with God's law. And verse, verse 14 continues that they are a law to themselves, <coughs> even though they do not have the law. They're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. In other words, even though they didn't have the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone and given to them like the Israelites did, it was clear that they knew to some degree right from wrong. And as a result, because they knew right from wrong, they were a witness against themselves with regard to sin. They witnessed against themselves. Verse 15 goes on. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's not in the same way that the promise of the new covenant tells us that the law would be written on our hearts. What that means is that not only do we know God's law, but we actually want to do it, praise God. That's true if you're a, new, if you're a member of this new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, you actually want to do what God requires of you. So that's different from this concept. The work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, what the law does is written on their hearts. Namely, it gave them knowledge of right from wrong. Without even having the Ten Commandments, without having the two tablets of stone, they had the knowledge of good and evil written right on their hearts. And not only do they have this knowledge of good and evil right in their very core, but we also read in the middle of verse 15, while their conscience also bears witness. God has given unbelievers a conscience. Unless a person has, has seared his conscience, as many people do, he feels guilty when he does wrong. And he feels comforted when he does right. You see this, uh, you can picture this from this common TV show slash movie cliche of, of that guy who he finally finds the guy he needs to take revenge on and you can see the conflict in his face and his trembling hands. He's got an opportunity to kill the guy. He really wants his revenge. But on the other hand, there's something telling him he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't do that. And eventually he doesn't because his conscience prevails. Even unbelievers have a conscience that bears witness to the law of God. Verse 15 continues. Verse 15 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I think that the idea here about this conflicting thoughts accusing or even excusing them is that, is that people's reasoning capabilities as those made in God's image, they help them realize that something is wrong. They can realize that from reason, but people can also give up that reason to excuse themselves to sin. Conflicting thoughts that are going on. So for example, in the first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, more commonly known as the DSM, it's psychology's Bible in a way. In the very first one, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder. Did you know that? It was classified as a mental disorder. Later, when that became less popular, then it changed to more the distress that comes from your homosexuality. And then in 2013, in the DSM-5, they just removed it altogether. So we're witnessing here, human reason used to observe homosexuality or sexual deviancy, and they used to call it a mental disorder. The author's thoughts used to accuse them, but now their thoughts excuse them. And that's true about any sin. That's true about any sin. How is it that in some tribes around the world, they practice cannibalism? It's because they sear their consciences and they adapt their thinking to excuse them for their sin. And that's true about any sin that we do. How do we, how do, we do that? Because we give up reason. We know that it's wrong and now we, now we love God, we love Christ, and it's madness. It's just a temporary moral insanity when we decide to sin. So this concept is, is what's being talked about when the confession refers to the light of nature, the light of nature. Built into all humans are these concepts of good and evil. The light of nature, a.k.a. reason, makes people inexcusable before God. They can't say that they didn't know that they sinned against him. They will not be able to say that. Let's continue to our next passage. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist begins the psalm in verses 1 through 3, singing, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So when the psalmist in verse 1, he writes at the beginning of the verse, the heavens. He's talking about what we can see when, when we look up into the sky. And to that we say, amen, they declare the glory of God. Not as much in Las Vegas city limits during the night, but generally speaking, when we look up at the sky, amen, they declare the glory of God. There is a lot on earth. We go to the Grand Canyon, we go to Sequoia. There's a lot on earth that we can be amazed about. But when we look up, you're driving down the street and you see this beautiful cloud pattern with the sun rays shining through gloriously. It puts you in awe of the artistry of the great creator. Or when you go camping, if you ever make it out to Fry Ranch and everyone has turned off their flashlights long enough and you look up and you see countless stars and suddenly you understand the promise to Abraham, but not just the stars, but you even see the shape of the Milky Way galaxy in which we sit. That's enough to make you cry. 
Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above, the psalmist continues, proclaims his handiwork. It's clear to us, not just us, but to everyone. It is clear that it's the work of God. Truthfully, it's clear to everybody that it's the work of God. And some people give credit to the true God. Others give credit to their false gods. And still others live in denial. And they say that this was all by chance. But the reality is, is that the beauty of the heavens declares the glory of God and his handiwork. The psalmist continues in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech. There's a there's at least a couple of ways, ideas on how to understand this. The first is that the heavens declare God's glory day to day. And that's happening every day. And that's definitely true. The other one is that as time goes on, as day comes after day, the days keep coming. They don't stop coming. They, that also declares the glory of God. That's true. The last part of verse 2 says, and night to night reveals knowledge. Night to night reveals knowledge. Just as God's glory is declared as the days go on, so the knowledge of him is revealed night after night. Here's an illustration. Imagine that every second you earn a dollar, every second, and you don't spend any of it. Just estimate how much you'd have in 100 years. And just like that, Day after day, night after night, the longer the time goes on, the revelation of God's glory abounds more and more as more and more get to know him. Verse 3 says, verse 3, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, the declaration that the heavens are making, the proclamation of the sky, the speech of day to day, and the revelation of night to night, cannot be ignored. What they proclaim is heard everywhere by everyone. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And together with Romans 1, we conclude once again that no one has an excuse. Indeed, the works of creation manifest the power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Now, having examined the passages that were cited by the authors of the confession on this subject, let's review this statement that we're examining. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Those passages that we looked at certainly affirm most of that, but we're trying to see if it's all true, right? So let's look at some of the words more closely. We see the word providence, and we really don't see providence explicitly in any of these passages. Providence just means divine guidance or care. So we don't necessarily see it in those passages what we know over, but we do see it elsewhere. So we're going to add a passage, Acts 14:17. In Acts 14:17, Paul and Barnabas, who are preaching they say, he, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So to these Gentiles whom Paul and Barnabas were preaching to, God had revealed himself via providence, provision, 
He did good to them by giving them rain, by giving them harvests. He gave them food. He gave them gladness. And so in that passage, we indeed, we indeed see that providence also leaves men without excuse. We also should look at goodness and wisdom in this statement. Goodness and wisdom. The confession claims that all of these things that we've reviewed manifest not only God's power, but also his goodness and his wisdom. Well, when it comes to wisdom, we, we could say that wisdom is just implied in all of these passages because wisdom is simply knowing what to do all the time. It's having good sense with all insight and knowledge. And God, in his creation, bears witness that he is all wise. But does it show that he is good? Well, we saw just now in Acts 14, 17 that the fact that he provides for even unbelievers is an outworking of his goodness. But also, if we look at creation and we see that creation is good, then we can also deduce that the one who created it is good. Just like when we eat a delicious meal and we say, my compliments to the chef, we assume that that chef is good because the meal is good. So when we observe the beauty of creation, we do rightly conclude that the creator is a good God. And then this last phrase in the statement that we're examining is yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. In other words, general revelation won't save anybody. And we didn't see that in any of the statements that we looked at per se, and nonetheless, we know that to be true. It's not enough to acknowledge that there's a creator. James tells us that even demons believe that, and they shudder. Demons do not bow the knee to God, even though they acknowledge his existence and they can't deny it. We know that the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And general revelation cannot communicate that to people. No matter how beautiful the stars are, no matter how much a sinner's conscience gets to him, he won't know about salvation through Jesus Christ just from general revelation. And that's why God has given us his word and the Great Commission to proclaim his word all over the world. So after looking at these statements, or I'm sorry, looking at these passages tonight, adding one from Acts and sprinkling in a dash of logic, we find the whole statement to be true. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Now again, what do we do with this information? Here are three quick points of application. Three quick points. Number one, make peace with this God. If you're here tonight and you are not right with God, you better get right with him. You can't deny that he exists. You know that he does. You can't deny that you broke his law. You know that in your heart of hearts. And we proclaim to you tonight that you can be made right with him even at this moment. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me and he lives again to be the mediator between God and us. So make peace with this God. 
Second, worship God in general revelation. Worship God in general revelation. We are to treasure the scriptures, but God has also revealed his divine attributes in the beauty of his creation. Be like the hymn writer who wrote this. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Daily behold God's goodness, wisdom, and power in the word and in creation. So worship God in general revelation. And thirdly, lastly, preach the word. Preach the word. General revelation won't save anybody. Everybody already knows that God exists. Everyone knows that. The issue isn't mental. It's moral. They don't want the God of the Bible to exist because then they would be accountable to that God. The means that God has provided for salvation is not general revelation. It's special revelation, the word of God, and in particular, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through this foolish gospel of Christ and him crucified, God has saved countless multitude and will continue to do so. So trust him. Preach the word. Creation declares that God exists and that he is good, wise, and powerful. We declare how to be right with him as he has revealed it to us in his holy scriptures. So may God help us to declare his glory day after day, night after night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've taught us, that your scriptures are, are the only way that we know how to be right with you. And even though that, that your creation shows who you are and shows your goodness and your power and your wisdom, yet they are not able to save, O Lord. And for that, we give an immense thank you that you didn't leave us with just that but that you actually revealed yourself to us in, in the word and that you actually gave your son to die for sinners like us because we had brought judgment on ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would respond with gratitude and worship and we pray that this gratitude and worship would overflow in a desire to preach this message to other people. Help us, O oh Lord, to not take this treasure and store it up for ourselves selfishly, but to be willing to dole it out and pour it out with all generosity, just like you did for us. Save, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We got time for a couple questions or comments. Julian. Romans 121. Um, Julian asks if that tells us that atheists aren't real aren't real um that's a it's a good question right um are atheists real i think that people can suppress the truth enough to genuinely not believe in god but it doesn't give them any excuse uh it's it's plain that god exists and it's funny because it's like atheists talk so much about god right. <laughs> it's like if you don't believe in him, why is he so important to you? It, it's like, it's just coming out. So it's interesting question. Yeah. They know he, God doesn't exist.
Yeah, uh, Krishna says they know that, <laughs> yeah, he says they know that God doesn't exist and they hate him. It's <laughs> a very good way to, succinct way to describe it. Yes, sir, Bruce. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Bruce is saying, like, yeah, how many times you get into arguments about whether Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny exists? Why are you so much in arguments about God's existence? It's that, it's that, it's that trading in the truth for a lie. It, it troubles the conscience, for sure. Good. Another thought or question? All right. Society decides that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, when what was the first society to decide that torturing babies for fun is wrong? Mm-hmm. And like, you should stop the whole thing. Right. So, uh, Christian was just saying he'll get into these arguments, the moral argument, and they will say, when he asks them, where does morality come from? A lot of times they will just say that society decides on morality. And the, your question was, when did the first society decide that torturing babies is wrong? Right. Something like that? Yeah. Um, and then that just usually shuts down the conversation. Everybody knows to do that to a baby is wrong. Right. So go right to the point. Yeah. You know, don't talk about you know, same-sex marriage or abortion or anything else. Go right to the point about torturing a baby. Right. Yeah, torturing a baby is wrong. That seems to be a universal morality. In order for somebody to be okay with abortion, they have to reframe it in their mind that that's not a baby. That's why they can torture it to kill it, essentially. Or him or her, I should say, not it. Fall into the trap of the world. All right. Well, if you have any more questions or comments, bring them up to me and um, praise the Lord. You're dismissed.